Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We are talking about some things about prayer uh, for the month of October and uh, focusing on prayer, what, what the Word of God teaches about uh, prayer, what it says about prayer. And um, we've already seen that, uh, as what God's Word teaches us, that uh, it gives us this picture of Jesus' habits of prayer life, uh, that he prayed often, he, he prayed uh, when he was weak, he prayed uh, at times where it seemed like it was, might not have been the best times to pray. Um, and last week we took a look at the importance of asking and receiving, and not in so much of asking what we want, but the fact of asking God to be at work in our lives and for His will to be done uh, in us and through us. And this week I wanted to address some of the reasons why prayers go unanswered. Now, some of the things we're going to talk about here this morning may seem like um, hard, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, to, to talk about, but I, I want to let you know that I have your, your best interest um, in all of this, and really, even God has more of a better interest in your life than, than I could ever uh, have that, but, um, you know, I think there are many times that when we pray, and I've heard this, maybe you've heard this as well, you know, I've prayed, but it doesn't seem like my, my prayers are going through, it doesn't seem like uh, God is answering those prayers, And there could be lots and lots of several reasons why uh, that may be happening. And this morning, I really want to focus on the big three of why many times our prayers go unanswered. Uh, When I was uh, living in Ohio, my wife and I, we bought a a fixer-upper house. Uh, It was, boy, it was a wreck. I mean, I'm surprised uh, she still stuck with me in all of it, you know. But... um, you know, we, we were going through there, and we replaced just about everything. Uh, we uh, did new plumbing, new flooring, new roof, new windows, new doors, paint, replastered the walls. I mean, totally, totally redid this whole thing. One of the things that uh, I got to learn how to do and, and uh, just learned as I went was rewiring. I had a guy come out because the house was built in 48, and uh, one of the things that uh, came with the house was that it had to be rewired because uh, it was a house that was a repo, and in order for us to uh, live in the house, it came with a thing saying that we had to have the house rewired. It had a 100-amp box, had to be upgraded to 200-amp box, but also we ran all new wiring in all the walls. Um, and so I, first of all, got an estimate on what that would cost, $16,000. Eee, yeah, I'm not doing that one. So, hey, I'll tell you what, wife, let's rip out all the electric and we can live off of extension cords in one back room. That'll be great, won't it? Yes, and uh, so spent some time, a couple years at least, rewiring room by room, getting everything done. And one of the things that I came to find out is that electricity has to run in a loop in order for it to work. And if you don't uh, wire correctly, uh, you're... um, you're positive and you're negative, and if you uh, have it wired on the wrong terminal or if you uh, have a break in one of those things, you can flip that light switch on and off as many times as you want, but you aren't getting any electricity. 
And uh, so many times, I think, in our prayer life, we think, well, it's just as simple as me praying, and it's going to work. But God actually has requirements in order for uh, prayer to actually work the way that it needs to work. And uh, so what we're going to talk about here this morning is how the fact that God requires for prayer to be a certain way and there are sometimes hindrances to that prayer. There are circuit jammers that uh, keep our prayers from being answered. And we know that it can't be God, right? Because God is holy, God is righteous, so it's not his problem. Uh, the problem lies with us and exactly uh, what we may be doing. And so there are hindrances to prayer. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning uh, prayer is our lifeline connection to God, and so make sure that there are no circuit jammers. Prayer is our lifeline connection with God, so make sure there are no circuit jammers. So let's take a look at a few of these uh, circuit jammers. First of all, number one, sin. You know, it's interesting enough that the thing that hinders our prayers the most is probably the thing that we're the most familiar with, and that is sin. Um, sin hinders prayer. Uh, it, it keeps our prayers from, from getting in connection with God. Let's focus on a few scriptures here to help us understand this. First of all, Isaiah 1.15. Isaiah here, he's having a vision about uh, Judah and Jerusalem. He's sent as a prophet to uh, tell people, uh, tell this nation uh, what they're doing, what they're doing is wrong. Uh, Jerusalem here, Judah, they, they have, they're practicing, practicing this pseudo-worship, uh, meaning they, they come into the temple, they have all their sacrifices, they sing all their songs, they do all this stuff, they make all their prayers, and uh, God is not pleased with it at all. Um, in fact, many times we read where he says, I just wish that they would just shut the doors to the temple because uh, your worship, it stakes. It's not really... Uh, what I desire. And uh, so Isaiah here, he says, when you spread out your hands, and uh, God is saying this through, through uh, Isaiah, when you spread out your hands, and this is the way they would pray, they'd spread out their hands, they're lifting their hands up to God uh, for prayer. And what does God say when you spread out your hands? This is when he says, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers I will not listen. So here they are. They're coming into an act of worship. They're spreading out their hands. And God says, even though you're making many prayers, he says, I will not listen. I will hide my eyes from you. I'm not going to listen to that. And uh, why? What's the problem? Why is God hiding his eyes from them? He, it's not that he can't see them. He can see them. But why is he choosing to turn his eyes away from them? Why is he choosing not to listen to them? What is the problem? Well, here it is. Your hands are full of blood. You see, their outstretched hands are dirty. Before God says this, listen to what he says uh, in, in Isaiah uh, chapter 1. Before he says all this, and this is the reason why God says that, uh, that their hands are, are dirty here. Isaiah chapter 1 and uh, verse number 11. It 
He says this, Hear the word, what, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I am weary, God says, I am weary of bearing them. Because they come to him with these outstretched hands, wanting to worship, wanting to pray, and it's just really for nothing because they have sin in their life. Their hands are dirty, and their sin affected their worship, and prayer was part of that worship. They were actually holding up their sin-dirty hands before God, and he has to look at them. He has to look at the thing that is the most disgusting to him, and that is sin. Look at another verse that is uh, found here in uh, Isaiah 59 that gives us a better uh, picture of this. God is speaking here again in Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. And listen to what he says here. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear is dull that it cannot hear. There's no problem on God's end. Does God listen and know? You bet, he does. He wants to graciously give us all things as we looked at uh, last week. So what's the problem? Here it is. God continues to speak in verse number two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But your iniquities, your sins... And God gets then a little bit more specific here. Look what he says. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Remember these outstretched hands? This is what God sees. What does he see in your hands? They're filled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. It's all over your hands, your fingers, those hands, those, those hands that are outstretched to God. It's, it's right there in front of him. Let's look at another one here. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isn't that interesting to think? How does our hands get dirty? It all begins in our heart, right? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? It's it's the things that proceed out of the heart, right? The things that are in our hearts. And that's where it all begins. It begins in our hearts. And so when we think about our prayers, what is the purpose of them? As we talked about last week, it's having access to everything God desires for our lives. Our will, our will being aligned with His. And when we pray... We are working in cooperation with God to do and accomplish His will on this earth. And if we are harboring sin in our lives, in our hearts, what use is our prayer? It's not getting through. We can go over there and we can toggle that light switch all we want. We could probably even try to have a healing service for the light switch. 
but it's not going to work. We have to get right with the Lord. We have to have confession of our sin. We have to have a renouncement of that sin in our life. When we pray, we are working with God, and it's to accomplish His will in us and through us. And if we have sin in our life, it creates a circuit jam, and the prayers are hindered. You know, I I would say that just about all of us here have a cell phone, right? Does anybody else still in here have a landline? Okay, a few of you, all right? It's it's becoming, like, really, really rare. Like, pretty soon you're going to have kids be like, what's that? That's weird, right? Um, But, you know, all of us just about have a a cell phone here. And, uh, you know, you think about it, it. Let's just say the cell towers went down. And then you wanted to call somebody. You dialed that number. Do, do, do. We're sorry, right? Like, you're not getting through. You could probably even say, well, you know what? I'm going to drive over to the nearest cell phone tower and I'm going to stand under it. And hopefully, maybe when I dial that number, it'll get through. It's not going to happen. There's been something that has broken that communication. We could probably try to send text after text after text, but if those cellular towers are down, it's not getting through. It's not going anywhere. They'll just be like, whoop, 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 right? It's not going anywhere. So it's important for us to remember that sin hinders our prayers. It breaks the communication in our prayers with the Lord. You know, I've come to find out more and more as I read God's Word and listen to what He says and through the times that the Holy Spirit puts His finger on certain things in my heart and in my life that God does not want me to do or to be harboring in my life, that if I fail to obey His voice, if I fail to listen to what He says, if I fail to heed his calling in my life, then that's sin. And sin is very deceptive, really deceptive. A lot of times we have very polished sin in our lives. We make it look not as bad, but it's sin. The closer that we draw to God, the more those things are exposed to us in our lives. And if we are walking with the Lord and we are drawing close to Him through His Word and we're allowing the work of the Holy Spirit to have its work and His will and His way in our life, then God will reveal that sin in our lives because God is light. And as we draw closer to that light, it's going to expose more and more darkness that is in our lives that we need to renounce and we need to get rid of. But if we draw closer to that light and God points his finger on something specific in our lives, in our hearts, and he says, I want this gone. I don't want this in your life. If I say, well, come on, God, you know, that, that's, that's important to me. This is important to me. This is this. This is that. And I make excuse after excuse. All I'm doing is I'm taking a, a pair of uh, wire cutters and I'm going clip, and I'm cutting off the communication with God. So it's very important that 
we keep this open communication with God and sin will hinder that. Remember, this is all about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Our prayers are asking God to work in us and through us. This is about his kingdom and his purposes being accomplished when we pray. And we are working together with him. And if we have some circuit jammers in our lives, our prayers are not going to be going through. Let's look at another circuit jammer here. Number two, selfish request. A second hindrance to prayer is a selfish request. Now, these two verses here in James uh, chapter 4 um, is, is part of a larger context, and it's, it's good to know exactly what James is talking about because if we, if we just take these verses and we lift them out of Scripture here and we say, okay, this is what it's talking about, we're going to miss what God is trying to teach us about what's important about our praying and being selfish. And so the context of the passage here is, is talking about the reason why we have arguments and why we quarrel and bick, uh, have uh, these, these bickering times with other individuals. And we fight and we quarrel. And we bicker back and forth. And James essentially says the reason why we do that is because we have idols in our heart. We have these selfish idols in our heart, the way that we want things to be done. And when we can't get it the way that we want it, what do we do? We're a 40-year-old baby, and we complain about it, and we whine about it, and we fight. And so James is trying to get us to understand something about our selfishness that we have in our lives here. And he says, what causes these quarrels, what causes these fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so James here calls for believers to be judging their selfish motives. All of us have them in our lives. All of us are selfish. We try to get things our way because we are selfish, and that's where James calls believers to repent of this way and that worldly type of living, that worldly type of thinking, because by living that way, we are becoming a friend of the world. Listen to what James says. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking to believers here. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying it's very important that we judge these selfish motives that are in our hearts. And then he brings prayer into all of this. And he talks about this, and he says, look at this. The reason about these selfish quarrels, this judging one another, is these verses that James alludes to then about prayer. And he's trying to get us to see that your prayer life or lack of a prayer life reveals the very focus of your heart. It tells, us, it tells God something about really what we are, that we are selfish, James emphasizes four times in these two verses here that yielding to your sinful pleasures does not get what you want, does not get what you thought it would come. Look what he says here. 
He says, uh, verse, uh, verse number two and three, he says, you desire and do not have. That's number one. You covet and cannot obtain. There's number two. You do not have because you do not ask. Number three. And you ask and do not receive. Four times that he alludes to how selfish we are in our prayers. Sin always makes very enticing promises. And in the short run, it seems to deliver but does it last? No, it does not. Over the long haul, I, I found myself coming, coming to myself very, very frustrated because what seemed like it was going to be a promise didn't fall through. And so James says we need to judge these selfish motives that are in our hearts. The bottom line of seeking your own way is always you do not have. Your prayer life or lack thereof reveals the very focus of your heart. Now look very specifically here, James 4, 2 through 3, about this, this prayer, this praying about what James alludes to, because the focus of the person who does not pray is always towards self. If you do not pray, it shows that your focus is not properly towards God. You know what prayer really is? Prayer is a declaration saying, God, I need you. I can't figure this out. I need you. And so when we do not pray, what are we telling God? I don't need you. I can figure it out myself. I don't need your help. I'm fine. And so because we do not pray, we don't receive. Because our prayer focus is not towards God, it's more focused on ourselves. So often when we're in a relational conflict, because that's the context here of James chapter 4, why are you bickering and arguing? Why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? What do we do? We scheme, we tell our friends our side of the story, we go for counseling, we read self-help books on how to deal with difficult people, but we don't make the problem a matter of faithful prayer. Maybe one reason that we fail to pray is that it's hard to pray for someone and be angry at them at the same time. Since we justify our anger, I have the right to be angry at this because this person did this to me, and we want to use our anger to make the other person pay for what they did. You know, we become, we become the, the judge, the jury, and the, uh, uh, the executioner all at the same time, right? And so we don't pray for them. We don't pray for them as Jesus told us to pray. We are not praying for their well-being. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, Mike, I, I do pray for people that make it difficult in my life. And I pray that he or she will deal with their wrong attitude or just get out of my life so I don't have these constant problems. Is that the way we're supposed to be praying? No, that's selfishness. That's why we're not receiving because it's a selfish motive. It's a, it has the wrong attitude. Maybe you prayed this way, Lord, help them to see things from my perspective or help them to understand my point of view. Well, I'm sorry. How do you know that your point of view is the right one? There's only one person who's right. That's God. So we have to pray correctly. We have to be praying the right way. Look at the second thing about the way that James talks about our prayers here. If you pray selfishly, it shows that you are trying to use God for your own individual purposes rather than seeking His purpose. 
James says in uh, 4.3, he says, you ask and do not what? Receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's a hindrance to prayer. That's trying to use God as Aladdin's genie, you know, just pulling him off the shelf when you need him, rubbing the lamp. Okay, God, this is what I need. And then when you get what you need, you put him back. That's selfish. Jesus clearly taught that prayer is not to get your will done on earth. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him to accomplish his will on this earth. And when we pray, we are cooperating with God. We are joining with him saying, God, this is what you're doing in this world. How can I be a help to that? What do you want me to do? Not going up to God saying, well, God, you know, sister so-and-so over there, she's really causing a lot of problems in my life. Or, you know, brother so-and-so over there, he's really making it hard in my life, and I want you to fix it. God, would you just call fire down from heaven and consume them? Remember, that's what the uh, disciples prayed. <laughs> they asked the Lord, Lord, will you just, just call fire down from heaven and consume them? Jesus is like, you don't even really realize what you're asking for here. We're very selfish in our prayers. Jesus told us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he taught us how to pray. And so prayer is not so that we can use God, it's so that God can use us. We need to remember it's either Christ is on the throne or we're on the throne. Who is it? should be Jesus. That's why James uses this language here in verses 6, 7, and 8 in uh, James 4. He talks about this and he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, as a Christian, a believer in Jesus, we are not to be the Lord of our lives. Jesus alone deserves that place. And yet I find so many, even myself, many times that profess to know Christ, trying to use God in a way to make themselves happy. That is, that is trying to put yourself on the throne and saying it's all about me. So James is saying that if you do not pray, it shows that your focus is not properly Godward. It's not towards the Lord. It's more focused on yourself. And if you pray selfishly, it shows that you're trying to use God for your own individual purposes, rather than seeking to fulfill his promises and his purposes. There's a third thing that James talks about in this, and it's to receive from God, ask with the proper motives. Look what he says. Jesus plainly taught us, Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. He did not say ask and it will be given to you instantly. We live in an age of instant everything. How many of you get really frustrated when you get online and it takes more than three seconds for a page to load? Yep. All of us, right? We put in the, put in the instant rice and we expect it to be done, poof, automatically, right? Instantly. 
Or we, we dial a phone number and we can't even wait very long. It's like, it's like okay, I'm going to call this person. If they don't pick up in the first ring, I'm hanging up. They must not be there. Okay. I, Jesus didn't say, if you ask, you're going to receive it instantly. He says, ask and it will be given to you. He may have very good reasons to delay the answer, and often the delays strengthen and test our faith. He knows the right timing as to when to answer those things. But our responsibility is to ask, but to ask with the right motive. What is that motive? He tells us you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I believe so many times when we pray, we ask for the wrong things because we're asking for the wrong motive. For example, there might be something that's very difficult to be bearing in our life, and so what do we ask God to do? God, please remove this situation out of my life. God, take this away from me. God, I'm struggling with this sin. Will you just please, please remove this? Uh, I've spoken with many individuals that struggle with uh, homosexuality, maybe even struggle with pornography. And I've heard them say this. I have prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take this away from me. Could it be that God is using those things in your life so that you would depend upon him more, trust him more for the grace of God being at work in your life? If God were to just remove all the hindrances and all the problems in our life, what would we do? How would we live? Very carelessly. See, prayer is us. It's a declaration to depend upon God. Depending upon Him. And so many times we ask God to remove us out of this situation, remove us from this thing, remove us from this trial, take this hurt away, take this pain away. But God is using that in a great way to accomplish His purposes in our lives. And so we have to ask with the right motives. And you know what's interesting is God knows what our motives are when we pray. He knows what's in our heart even before we pray. We could be praying for completely legitimate things, personal things, for physical strength, healing from a sickness, friends and family, money, etc., etc., etc. list goes on and on and on and on. But if the motive is wrong, if it's for selfish reasons, then do not expect your prayers to be answered. God knows that the purpose of our hearts is to want to please him or not. Here's a third one. An unforgiving spirit. When you look through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'll notice how much he speaks about prayer. But you know what the other thing that you notice what he speaks about all often? Forgiveness. And what's even more interesting is how he puts forgiveness and prayer together. They're tied together. And so that ought to tell us something that when we do not have forgiveness in our lives, in our hearts towards others, then our prayers are going to be hindered. There's going to be a circuit jammer there, and it's not going to be able to get through. When you look at the gospel accounts and you see about how Jesus talks about forgiveness... The question that we need to figure out is why does unforgiveness hinder my prayer? 
Why does harboring unforgiveness towards another fellow believer in Christ hinder my prayer? It's a circuit jammer. Why does it do that? Well, let's look at some passages here in Matthew that really teach us about some of these things. Uh, First of all, in Matthew uh, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus here gives us some interesting things and teaches us some things about prayer and how it's related to forgiveness. Uh, So in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 23, we read here is what uh, Jesus teaches us. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here's the picture of a guy coming to the altar for worship. Uh, he's coming to the temple, okay? And he's carrying a lamb, he's carrying a goat, he's carrying something, he's going to go to worship. And he's, I am going to go worship, all right, this is great, right? And as he's approaching the temple there, he's approaching the place where he's going to worship, an image comes into his mind about that guy that really did him dirty, you know. Hey, man, I went to go buy a pot, and that guy told me it was a good pot, but I got home, it had a crack in it. I went to go find the guy, tell him he wouldn't give me the money back. He even had on his side, Christian pot maker. Can you believe that? What? That guy really, really messed with me. Ah. Jesus says, he says, if that happens, he says, Don't go through the motions. Don't go over there to the altar and slaughter your lamb and go into worship. He says, what I want you to do is put your gift down and immediately go to that man and make things right. And then come back and offer the gift. So here's this guy. He's approaching He's bringing his sacrifice, and he gets very upset. Maybe this has happened to you. Have you ever been driving down the road, and all of a sudden, something comes into your mind about what somebody did, what somebody said to you, and then you begin to get angry, and then you even begin to have a conversation with the person in the car, and they're not even there, and you you begin to tell them what for, you know, I'm so upset. What is that? Where did that come from? That tells us something that we have unforgiveness in our hearts, and it's coming out. It's coming out. And unforgiveness, unforgiving spirit will hinder our prayer life. Let's continue to look more at this. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Jesus gives us some more things about this. Look what he says. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This here in verses 9 through 13 is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And it, uh, it, it consists of these seven petitions that request that that the Lord says that we should be praying, and hopefully I'll be uh, teaching on this next week. But 
at the end of this, close of this prayer that Jesus gives us and tells us how we are to pray, he then focuses really, he takes that last part there, and he, he, he revisits it, and he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he revisits this thing about forgiveness. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so Jesus here is emphasizing a very particular aspect of the prayer and gives us some sobering thoughts about forgiveness. Now what's interesting is this next one in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 35. Because what I want you to do is I want you to draw a line from Matthew 6 all the way over to Matthew 18. The disciples heard everything that Jesus had to say about prayer. And here in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about how we're to be reconciling with one another. If you have a problem with an individual, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to go with that individual alone, tell them their fault alone, and try to work it out, right? He says, if you can't work it out, then he says, you bring along two or three more witnesses that every word may be established. He doesn't want gossip going on. He's trying to help us work through these things. He says, if that doesn't work it out, then you bring it before the church, right? And you try to work all these things out. But after Jesus talks about those things, look at verses number 19 in Matthew 18, because Jesus begins telling us again about prayer. He says, again, I say to you, this is all within the context of this. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, that's prayer, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. So he's giving this instruction here. And when he does that, Peter here seems to remember some previous remarks that Jesus had to say about prayer and about forgiveness. Because what is Jesus telling us here? He's talking about how we can work these problems out in our lives. And then Peter's like, huh, that sounds kind of familiar what you talked about earlier there. And look how Peter interjects in this. So Jesus talking about prayer in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Can you see the, the, the grin on his face almost in a way of like, yeah, I got this all figured out. I'm a pretty good Christian, Lord. If if my brother offends me, I know what to do. I will forgive him seven times, right? And look how our Lord answers him. He says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77, seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debts. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And so there's a connection here between prayer and forgiveness. Peter's thinking he's, you know, something else. He's like, hey, I just posted on my Instagram Forgive your brother seven times. I got, it. I got it all figured out, Lord. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. 490 times. Now, is it possible for any of us to keep that accurate account when somebody sins against us that we would forgive them 490 times? No. It's not a matter of mathematics with this. What it is is Jesus is trying to say, you need to be in a constant state of forgiveness when people sin against you, when they do something wrong to you. You forgive them from the heart. You forgive them from the heart. You don't make a big deal about it. You don't go and tell everybody else what that person did. You forgive them from the heart. And Jesus gives this thing, this story, to really illustrate the point. And he talks about this guy who owed, what does he say here? 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. This was a great debt that was, that was owed. 10,000 talents during this time is 60 million working days. 60 million working days. In modern money today, it would be the equivalent, if you were to work 60 million working days, it would be the equivalent of $3.48 billion that this man owed. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is he's saying that this man owed an unpayable amount. He could not, he could not pay it. It was unpayable. It was a massive debt. Could not pay. And what does this man do? He goes and he starts to be beg and plead and, hey, listen, times are tough right now. If you just give me a little time, I can get it made up. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll do what I can. Just give me some time here. The Lord has mercy on him, forgives him everything. Says it's all done and taken care of. It's forgiven from you. And then this man goes and he finds this other guy and he owes him. This sounds crazy. How much? A hundred denarii. A denarii was a one day's wage for a typical day worker. The typical laborer during that time would have worked 50 weeks out of the year and earned an annual wage of only 300 denarii. Now let's put this into perspective. This guy owes 10,000 talents. This guy over here only owes 100 denarii. So at 100 denarii, okay, if a man works a, an entire year, he would earn only about 300 denarii. So this man only owed a one-third 
of a year's wage or four months' salary. That was about it. After 20 years of working, if you, if you worked getting these denarius, after 20 years of working, you will have earned 6,000 denarii, and 6,000 denarii is only equal to one talent. So to put this into perspective, the other guy owed 10,000 talents, and it was going to take him 200,000 years to pay off his debt. You see how ludicrous that sounds when this man that only owes 100 denarii and that guy's going over there and he's choking him? Pay me what you owe me! And see, Jesus is trying to draw a conclusion to us and trying to help us understand forgiveness because when we look at the gospel and we understand the fact that we have been forgiven an insurmountable debt, that Jesus released us from the debt of sin, you would never be able to pay it back. Never. Our fate was already sealed. We're going to be cast into the hell fire. We're going to be judged for our sin. And Jesus forgave all of it. And what do we do? We go and find somebody that did something very petty to us. And we begin to choke them and say, pay me what you owe me. And we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. Now, if we're praying... Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bless my family, bless my dog, bless my cat. You know, you're going through all this stuff, right? And yet, your brother who sinned against you, when you see, oh, that person, I can't believe that person. What are we thinking that God wants to hear our wonderful prayers that we are lifting up to him because we're not even willing to have forgiveness towards somebody that just wrongs us, when yet we wronged God in such a way. So we have to have forgiveness in our heart in order for there to be the right kind of prayers in our lives. I think David said this very well, and this is his prayer. This is David's prayer. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's what we need to pray as well. Lord, search my heart. Lord, are there hindrances in my life that is keeping me from having my prayers answered? God, I want to be at work with you, having your purpose being done in my life and through me. Search me, Lord. Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.